Good morning, everyone. My name is Julie, and I am just wondering if I'm going to be cut off in my prime here. We're reading today from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 to 12. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 to 12, if you have your Bibles. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophet who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told by you, by those who have preached the gospel to you and by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Terrific. Can I say it's great? It is great to be with you for a few weeks. Um, all things being equal, I felt very proud of myself scanning my QR code on the way in. If you, given my ancient years, you know, if you need any help with this, just come and see me afterwards and I'll point you to Sue, who's the one who downloaded the app on my phone and made it all possible. All right. But uh, they are the times we're in. And uh, it's just terrific that we can meet like this. Today, around, you're probably aware there are 11 churches in the network. There are only two of those churches that are actually meeting today. Uh, that's this church and the one at Brighton. There are a number of reasons why others aren't meeting right now. A number of schools have said, I should say this very quietly, but a number of schools have said they feel like they'd like to keep their buildings free of hirers, external hirers for the moment till school finishes. Uh, Padilla have not, not said that, which is wonderful for us. 
so a number of our churches meet in those schools, so that's, that's happened for them. For a few of our churches, the buildings they meet in are so small that the four square metre rule that we currently have just makes it unworkable to actually get people into a building, which is not, not your problem here. So it'd be great for me as I start us off as we look at 1 Peter, which we're doing for the next three weeks, to uh, pray for them, give thanks for our own situation, and uh, ask God if he'll help us as we uh, wrestle with this wonderful part of his word. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a God who is so gracious to us, Uh, We thank you for the wonderful privilege we have this morning of being able to meet, the joy it is to be face-to-face with one another. Uh, Father, we commend the churches in our network, but also churches around uh, our city, our state, the nation, our world, who don't have the wonderful privilege we have today uh, because of the pandemic or even other reasons of persecution or opposition. Father, we commend those brothers and sisters to you, praying you'll encourage them with the eternal truths of your character and your promises. But for our part, Father, we ask that you will be graciously with us, that we'll be profoundly touched by your word, encouraged and strengthened by it as we seek to live out the reality of it in our lives. We we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want you to imagine that uh, I met you in a social sort of setting for the first time and we did something similar to what Corolla just did. Uh, we asked questions to get to know each other. And I asked you uh, to tell me a little bit about yourself. You know, what, would you, what would you tell me? What sort of things would come to your mind immediately? So if you asked me, I'd probably say, well, I've been married to the delightful Sue for over 40 years now. I have three children uh, who are all now over the age of 30, which is just a tad terrifying. Uh, I have six absolutely wonderful grandchildren because grandparents are allowed to brag about their grandchildren without any fear of retribution at all. And uh, we actually have another grandchild due in March next year, and I'm encouraging others in the process. So uh, <laughs> those sort of things. I tell you, I'm a pastor I tell you, at one stage I used to have cascading long red hair when I was at university and a bushy red beard. I, I tell you, I barracked for the AFL team that won the wooden spoon this year. Right? I could tell you all those things about myself. But let's say I, I tweak the question and I ask you to tell me things about yourself that had actually had the most profound influence on your life. You know, the, the events or things that have occurred in your past that have more significantly shaped you in terms of the person you are today or the way in which you think about life. Now, once I I ask that question, it's a much deeper question, isn't it? Uh, It's a question that you have to think more carefully about. You need to reflect more on why you're the person you are. When we turn to this letter of 1 Peter, it's written primarily to shape Christians in their sense of identity, their sense of purpose. It's a letter that was written around 64 AD. It was written to Christians on the eastern edge of the then Roman Empire. So you pick it up in verse 1. If you've got the chance to link into the... um, the Bible passage on your, your phone or whatever, it'd be handy to have that, or your Bibles if you've brought the paper version. 
Um, pick it up in verse 1. Written to believers in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Now this is not um, Asia as we know today, but rather that sort of space on the uh, northern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And it's written to a culture where disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were treated with not just indifference, but they were regarded as subversives, as people who were trying to undermine the very direction and course of the Roman Empire. They were treated almost as um, having repugnant social values. And I sense that that is the phase that we're in as believers in our world, in our culture. Uh, Once we were sort of vanilla for our society, you know, the norm, Uh, but believers these days, I think, are treated as oddities, people with strange views, even views that people want to socially reject. We know what it's like to be rejected, actually, for no other reason except that we are Christians and hold the name of Jesus. The main purpose of the letter, or the big idea, you can pick up actually towards the end of the letter, not that we'll get to that in this, um, this series of talks, but 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12, it says, I've written to you briefly to encourage you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. This is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. In this letter, we're reminded of the wonderful grace of God. And that's the, the core thing, the essential thing that's meant to shape our sense of identity and purpose. Today, what we're going to do is just explore the opening verses. We'll next week look at the sort of second half of chapter one. The following week, we'll look at the first section of chapter two. But let's get into it today. Let's look at these opening, opening words in this letter. The people that Peter is writing to, they're, they're described as exiles scattered. Exiles scattered. Now, literally, this is actually exiles of the dispersion. Uh, exiles of the dispersion. Uh, Peter is relying on Old Testament categories. Uh, he's really referring to the people of God in the Old Testament who are living away from Jerusalem and the promised land. So when you think about that, you think of Abraham or the Exodus or God's people when they were sent to Babylon to be in exile. It, it's the concept of living as an expat. I don't know if you've ever had that that experience of living somewhere where you are a foreigner uh, in a nation. I, a couple of months ago, I chatted to Maggie Cruz. Maggie is a gospel partner uh, around the network who, for a number of decades, has been serving in Africa. Then, around 12 months ago, maybe a little less, she changed her continent from Africa to Asia, and she's been working in Cambodia. And when I asked her what that experience was like... Uh, This is what she said. I'm still only six months in and feeling like a stranger in a strange land. She said the language is different. Uh, The sense of humour is different. She said in Africa it's all belly laughs and, you know, slapstick humour. In Cambodia, she said it's much more subtle 
and uh, it's harder to sort of get your head around. And she's having to make those adjustments. She said for the first time, she's living in a nation that is in the shadow of genocide. And you can see the profound effect of that Pol Pot's regime on the people who live in that nation. Exiles of the dispersion. But here's the interesting thing. When you go to 1 Peter, uh, the people that Peter was writing to, most of them were quite likely living in the towns in which they were born. So in what sense are they exiles scattered? What sense? You see, this letter is written not so much to Jews living away from Jerusalem, but Christians who are living away from heaven, their ultimate home and destination. And if you're a believer, then you know that tension. You know the the odd tension of living with trust in God in a world that, that has a measure of brokenness because of sin. It was captured so well, wasn't it, in the kids' talk that Meredith just, just gave us, that, that strange, disjointed feeling. And believers, because of our trust in Jesus, we march to the beat of a different drum. Then we go on in verse 2 and look at the way they're described those chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Back in verse 1, the people Peter's writing to have already been referred to as God's elect. Now, this idea of being chosen or being elect from God, it has caused an enormous amount of tension and controversy among believers and even unbelievers over the years. Questions like, is it fair that God should choose people to be part of his family from before the creation of the world, even before they're born? How could that be fair? Did God choose us to be followers of Jesus, or didn't we exercise some decision-making in that and choose to follow him? You know, that sort of debate is great if you're trying to liven up a Bible study. Uh, why would we ever tell anyone about Jesus? After all, God's either chosen them or he hasn't. Isn't that right? You know, and you know if you've been around the you know, Christian circles for a while that there are those sort of debates. But can I say, this is not written to generate theological debate. It's written to fill you with thankfulness and awe. That's why it's here. In Steve Jobs' uh, biography... The, you know, the guy who created Apple products and uh, did that marketing. He tells a story that happened to him when he was about six or seven years old. He said he was playing with a girl across the street and he explained to her that he was adopted. And this little seven-year-old girl turned to him and she said this. So does that mean your real parents didn't want you? And at that moment, Job said lightning bolts just went off in my head and I remember running home crying and my parents said no Steve you have to understand and Jobs tells the story he says I was serious they looked me straight in the eye and they said we specifically picked you 
out. And Job says, both my parents said it separately and they repeated and emphasised every word in that sentence. We specifically picked you out. Job says, I have always felt special. My parents made me feel special. Are you a believer? Well, friends, you are only because God chose you to be part of his family. Now, the goal of his choice of you is not just so that you feel special, although that should be the case, but actually you pick it up as you go into verse 3, so that you might live for the praise of his name. It's not all about us, but we're the recipients of his extraordinary grace. So what does it mean to be brought by God into his family? Now, what I want to do is just slow down for a little bit. You might think I've been going slowly already, but I'm going to slow down even more, right, as we get into verses 3 and 4 and just look at what it's saying here. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I remember seeing a cartoon in a uh, Christian book years ago and the cartoon was uh, trying to capture twins in the womb, you know, floating around in the amniotic fluid. And uh, because it's a cartoon, one of the twins was talking to the other twin and there was this sort of uh, speech bubble that came off from one of the twin. And the, the twin was saying, don't be stupid. Who's ever heard of life after birth? You know, there was that sort of idea. And I found that quite, quite evocative. Birth radically changes the trajectory of your life. It does, doesn't it? I mean, one moment you're in a warm, sheltered environment. The second you're shoved out into this sort of bright, cold, noisy world with someone pushing a tube down your throat and sucking gunk out of your lungs. You know, like it's a pretty rude sort of awakening in lots of ways. You start breathing, that's birth. So what is this new birth that Peter talks about here? And essentially what it is, is to start a new life that is dominated by a relationship with God. That's what new birth is. And it's described here as being given a living hope. Now, there are two sort of perspectives on view here. Uh, the one is that you are, you are born, you live, you make the most of the 70 or 80 years you have, and that's it. That's the sort of the one view. But what's being talked about here is the new life or another life which is full of hope and a future that extends eternally beyond the 70 or 80 years. But just as Meredith was talking about the kids' talk, we do need to understand how this hope is being spoken of. Uh, It isn't the way we use it in 21st century Australia. You know, I could tell you I am hoping right, that the Crows will win the AFL flag next year, right? That is what is called a faint hope, right? It's just not going to happen, you know, as far as I can tell. That's not the sort of hope that's talked about here. Hope here in uh, the Bible generally, but here in certainly 1 Peter, it's describing a definite thing. 
currently unseen, but certain that it will happen. So what's the Christian hope? What's it based on? Why is it so secure? Well, it's new hope, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The the resurrection of Jesus changes absolutely everything. Remember Peter, the, the guy who's writing this letter, He's the same Peter who turned his back on Jesus when he was going to the cross. He is the same Peter who was just devastated by his death and bereft of hope and confidence. But his life was turned completely on its head when he, be, when he came face to face with the living Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Uh, and this real-time, real event, it changed Peter's life, but it actually changes anyone's life who puts their trust in Jesus. And as a result, Peter, he actually dedicated his life to exhorting people, to encouraging people to put their trust in Jesus. Uh, Tradition has it that Peter was actually crucified, just like Jesus, the the difference being um, uh, that uh, apparently he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified in quite the same way. That's the way tradition talks about it. But how could you do that? How could you risk your life like that? Well, it's only if you've been born again to a living hope. You hear people say it quite often, don't it? Uh, don't we? You, you only live once. You hear people say that. You only live once. And of course, if that's true, you have to squeeze the most you can out of these 80 years and to avoid anything that cuts across the length of your life or the quality of your enjoyment of life. But if you've been born again, it changes everything. It changes your ambitions, how you see your own sense of purpose and identity, what you value. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that uh, the pandemic Um, eases off completely, the international borders open up and so we're able to plan international travel if we so choose. I want you to imagine that uh, Julie and John, they decide they're going to go on a big international trip. You know, they have won thousands and thousands of kilometres, taking most of the continents around the world and they decide to splurge, right, and do it business class all the way, which is the normal way they travel, I expect, you know. Oh, always, right? Okay, so the... Got this, um, got this plan, they get to go away, this, this amazing trip, they're away for five months uh, doing this extraordinary tour of the world. And when they get, come back, they decide, as you do, that they will get all their family and friends together to look at the mandatory slideshow, right, of all the places they've been. There are 5,000 slides, they managed to pare it down to 1,000. All, uh, <laughs> all the special moments from this trip. 1,000 slides. Now, can I, I guarantee that 990 of those slides won't be of John and Julie's trip to the airport from the back seat of the taxi, you know, that five-month colossal trip. It will not be focused on the journey from where they lived to Adelaide Airport. It is exactly the same when you have experienced new birth. 80 years 
is just a scratch on the face of eternity. It is just so minor. We have a living hope that is dominated by a future that just overshadows our lives now and it drives our ambitions, our hopes and our dreams. And that's why it says when you get to verse 4 that we have an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade. And this inheritance is kept for you. Uh, My mother died a number of years ago now and I got some of her treasured physical items, numbers of which um, have been broken in a variety of ways, just the way it goes when you've got uh, things like that. And in due course, uh, when I die, they just get passed on to my kids and their kids will break them. You know, it's sort of just the way inherited items like that work, I think. But that's the nature of inheritance in this world. It has sort of a use-by date. Stuff in this world doesn't last, uh, whether it be cars or houses or your bodies, right? You know, I used to have flaming red hair. I don't anymore. You know, there's a, and that is a reflection of how I'm going, right? I'm heading down that sort of, that road. But friends, if you're born again, you have an inheritance that can never spoil, fade or perish. It can't be stolen because it is secure in heaven. And that inheritance will be revealed, verse 5, in the last time when Jesus winds up the history of the world, a time of joy in the presence of God himself. And friends, this is the certain hope that drives us during the tough times. And the letter of 1 Peter is written to believers enduring opposition and pressure and struggle. Verse 6, Now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Now when it it says for a little while, what's it talking about? You know, a bad day, bad hair day, bad week, bad month, bad year. Well, I think it's talking about the period until the last time that we just referred to in verse 5. The little while here is the 70 or 80 years living in this world as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the little while that's on view. And what are the trials that we're talking about? Actually, as you go through the letter, and it's worth reading over these three weeks, this letter, a few times through each week, I think, just to get your head around it. But Peter talks about the sort of trials, gives examples. In verse 12 of chapter 2, you'll be accused of doing wrong, spoken of as evil, Or in chapter 2, verse 19, suffering unjustly. Chapter 3, verse 9, being insulted and mocked. Chapter 3, verse 13, suffering for doing what is right. Chapter 4, verse 4, abused because you don't join in their wild living. Chapter 4, verse 14, insulted because you identify with Jesus. It all sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? Pretty normal for our world. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, 
may result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus is revealed. Now, understand really carefully, this is not saying we should be masochists. You know, it's not saying, I just love suffering, don't you? You know, we should all wear T-shirts. Hit me, I'm a Christian. You know, this is not what is being spoken of here. But what we are being told is that if you are born again, God is using that opposition and struggle and the battle of living in this world to shape you for the eternity that he's promised you. That's the the certainty and the eternity that drives our hearts now. And when when you know what God's doing, verse 9, it fills us with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Inexpressible and glorious joy. Now, this is not happy, clappy, smiley that we're talking about here, uh, but a profound, settled confidence and joy in God himself, even in the midst of heartache and struggle. It's a man called Horatio Spafford. He was an American lawyer in the 1800s. He invested in uh, real estate and then in 1871 in the Great Fire of Chicago, uh, most of his real estate holdings got wiped out. Two years later, his wife and their four daughters uh, took a boat trip uh, back to the UK. And on the 22nd of November, 1873, their ship collided with another vessel as it was crossing the Atlantic, and it sank. Spafford received a short uh, a wide message after the boat sank from his wife. It said, saved alone. All four of his daughters had perished. Shortly afterwards, uh, Spafford himself sailed uh, to England on a boat that basically went the same course as the one his wife and daughters had been on. And on that voyage... He wrote a famous hymn, uh, It Is Well With My Soul. We're going to sing it, actually, at the end of this meeting. And apparently he wrote it when he reached roughly that point where his wife and daughters, their boat had sank. He penned this hymn. Let me just read you one verse. When peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrows like sea billows roll whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say it is well it is well with my soul friends if I if I asked you what have been the most significant events that have shaped your heart and your mind and your life? You know, the experiences or, or whatever? Would you tell me about the taxi ride to the airport? You, you know what I mean, don't you? Would you tell me about your career or your family, your wonderful grandchildren? 
your achievements, the smart investments you've made that you think are going to survive this COVID period. Don't get me wrong, they're, they're good things, but they're way too flimsy to build a life on. Well, would you be able to say, along with the Apostle Peter, these words? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given me new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for me. Friends, that's our secure hope. Can I pray for us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that uh, you're a God who makes promises, you're faithful. Father, we thank you that we have a confidence for eternity that's resting not on what we've done, who we are, but on what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death, but especially his resurrection from the dead, uh, securing our future as we put our trust in him. Father, we know that uh, life in this world, it involves struggles. Uh, it involves heartache. We know it involves uh, people um, not understanding our convictions, or even if they do, not agreeing with them. We know we're in a profoundly uh, contested time in history where people are challenging uh, the gospel and views of what you've done for us and your son. Father, we pray that you'll help us to remember that you're using those situations to shape us for that eternity that you have secured for us. Help us not to take our eyes off those realities. And Father, we pray that you'll sustain us through them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.